Happiness, I believe, is rooted in truth and being your authentic self. Because I spent so long, obviously, with the bipolar disorder, pretending. And on the outside, I appeared happy. I was prom queen. I was doing everything. I was striving to have this sort of body and image and everything for years. Since I can remember, I had no identity and had no sense of happiness. And then when I, well, I went to a mental hospital, right? And I kind of broke and I found like in those shattered pieces, my truth. Hi there, I'm Kelly Tennant. This is Ceremony Wellness, where we integrate modern healing and ancient wisdom. After spending 13 years in a chronic health battle, I've made it my life's mission to support you on your healing journey. Each week, I gather with the leading voices in health, wellness, and spiritual development for rich conversations to help you heal deeply and create the life you've been longing for. My guests and I educate you on the latest healing remedies and alternatives to the traditional path. I've personally curated this space to elevate your mind, body, and spirit. Mental health is a very important topic to me as I have talked through my own journey with feeling depressed and anxiety and being suicidal at a really young age. And so when I found today's guest last year, I got so excited. I love this woman so freaking much. And I am so grateful that I got to finally meet her in person and sit on my couch and get all cozy and just have the best chat. This is the longest episode I have ever done with someone. And as you listen, you will understand why. I did not want this girl to ever leave my apartment. Hannah Bloom is a mental health advocate living with bipolar disorder. And I am just so obsessed with her honesty and her willingness to show up so bravely every day to help break the stigma of mental illness and support others as they work through their struggles. She is such an incredible writer and human. And her book is coming soon, which we talk about on the show. I'm so excited. So please head to Hannah D. Bloom. That's H-A-N-N-A-H-D-B-L-U-M on Instagram and check out her badass blog, halfway to the number two, hannah.com. And you can take so much from what she has to share. She's so wise. She's so transparent. And she truly has a heart of gold and just wants to help people in this experience. And I'm just so excited for you to listen to this. Enjoy. I love your, ta- your star tattoo. Thank you. What is that for? Um, So the star tattoo, it like represents... You know, stars can't shine without darkness in each. Yeah, I know. I knew it was going to be deep. (laughs) Girl, the meaning when people ask me, I'm usually just like nothing. Because the meaning, of course, has like is way over the top deep. Then each star represents someone who is like impacted or inspired my Mm. life, heartbreak and all of it. But no one like I, I, it's not that I'm trying to keep people in suspense. It's just, I live in my own movie. So of course, like nobody <laughs> knows the names and oh, all. Oh, that. that's so good. And Isn't when did it? you get that? How old were you? I was about, so when I was 19, I got about like three or four doing it. And now it's up to about 1920. 
Oh, so you keep adding? Yeah, Got so it. I keep. Hopefully, I don't meet that many yeah. other inspirational like, people. I have only so much. I'm like neck, Kelly. People. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, geez, Louise. But okay, tell me how you're doing. I'm I want to hear. I know we have these. Okay, so yeah, I'm you're so good. good. Yeah, I'm so good. I am in. Um, it's funny. I was in Joshua Tree hiking this weekend with Connor. Um, oh, I already looked I him just, up. Yeah, you hit the name too. <laughs> I take yeah, and um. It was it's funny. I was explaining to him, I'm in this this overwhelm of expansion right. in every aspect of my life. And it's I've always been someone that moves really fast and I only have one speed. Like I'm a fucking freight train, like Me rolling. Too. Yeah. And so it's like when I realize one thing, I want to fix all the parts of my life and I want to figure it out and I want to go. I don't want to wait because right. I realize, okay, maybe I have like this limiting factor or belief in one part of my life and I know it's affecting everything else. Career, right. love, relationships, right. just like the way I treat myself. And so I am in this just crazy growth. And it's, really? it's been like the wildest month of my life. It's just so crazy, but in the best way, and, but super painful at the same time, you know, where you're shedding like Growing hard pains. things. Yeah. And you're realizing things that you've done or decisions you've made or things you've thought about yourself. And you're like, what was I doing? You, right. And I had this moment when we were in Joshua Tree and I was, I was pacing back and forth and I was just like, do I want my old life or do I want my new life? And I like fully stepped into my new life. I really like made that conscious choice. It was Kelly, wait a minute. You mean this happened this past weekend? Yeah, two days ago. Oh my God, I'm so honored that I'm hearing your new life. I know. Wait, so wait, can you explain a little bit more? And you mean going into your new life like it, it, with growth and stuff, mm-hmm. you mean just what do you mean new life? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. For me, I think that I have been living in such fear of having mm. everything I ever wanted. Isn't that great? Yeah. And it's like, what happens if you get all the things you want? Then who are you? Because right. then what if you're no longer struggling? What if I'm no longer sick? What if I am in a good relationship? What if I have healed things with my parents that were really tough? What if I loved myself? What if I right. accepted myself? What if my podcast was amazing and people right. loved it? Well, then what would I spend my days doing? Because I wouldn't have to have the anxiety and the stress and like this like crazy monkey mind that I've been living with. And it was... I, I, was, mm. I was like pacing... And I was biting my nails and I was doing all these things that are my, you know, my little anxiety thing. Yeah. And then I just like took a breath and I was like crying too. And I just stood up and I was like, okay, like it's time to go. Oh, and I just like God. let it go right there. And you just let that fear go. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, no, it's time to step into everything that you want right. and just expand into it and stop hiding. Stop right. fucking hiding. Uh, right. Right. That's so true. I totally get that. It's, because it's it's nerve wracking, you know what I mean, to really go after things that you want, and then there's a risk of failure, and then also it's tough to grow and take that initiative. And then I also think I don't know if you'll agree with this, but there's like this fear because we see so many people that have everything and they're crazy. Mm-hmm. They are like not well. Yeah. You know, they are in bad marriages or they have too much money and they or don't have good relationships. That's that's the idea that you see people that have it all mm-hmm. don't really have it all. Yes. 
and they don't have any balance. And that's kind of what has scared me. Like, well, if I get there, what happens then? You know, but you can't, there's fears about everything. It's funny though, because, right? So I'm a blogger, I'm a writer. Okay. So yeah, you are. I'm An hustling. Amazing oh writer. my gosh. Thank you I'm so much. With you. Oh, thank you. But I'm hustling, right? Mm-hmm. So it is a hustle. And I'm living off oodles and noodles right now, you know, <laughs> and it's fine. But the craziest part is I'm the happiest I've ever been. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't have, I mean, I probably shouldn't say this out loud, but. I'm not at a great financial place, right? And so I'm hustling, which is normal when you're trying to go somewhere. And, you know, kind of unstable in many ways. But I'm the happiest I've ever been versus when I did have more money and had my own apartment in downtown and stuff like that, I wasn't as happy. And it's kind of crazy to think that how... And I think it's because I don't have any fear because I have nothing to lose. You know, Mm. that's not true, but it's just a sense of freedom almost to kind of enter. Yeah. Well, it's like a different, it's a different something to lose, right? Before it was like Mm. material stuff to lose. And now it's it's who you are. It's like losing your soul and selling out. Right. That's the harder part. Right. Yeah. I never realized how, I didn't even know what this word purpose meant Mm. before. I wasn't even into it. You know, I think the whole sometimes it's overdone about purpose and everything. I didn't really think about it. And little did I know I was manifesting it with the mental health thing. And then I learned about it. I said to myself, oh, that's what I'm doing. And I can just say that, and I'm sure you have the same thing because you're following your purpose, is that it's, it's a form of happiness that you can't even explain when you found your purpose and you're moving forward and have manifested it and combined it with your passion. Mm. You just could be anywhere doing anything. And it's a, a type of happiness that is so rooted in your core mm. that nothing really phases you as much. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that way? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I think what what you said about it being rooted in your core, that has to be the driving factor. Because if it's rooted in anything else, then it's not going to be authentically true to who you are and it's not going to resonate the way you want. Right. Yeah. Right. And I think that's what keeps balance. I think of getting everything you want and with your, your situation too, is that you have purpose so that's guiding you and Mm -hmm. all of that, that comes, you're never going to, because those things aren't valued. Mm -hmm. That just comes with it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'm excited for the future. And it's just such a great feeling to have purpose and to have that. I want everybody to have it. Yeah. You know, so true. How do you define happiness for you and what that means? So happiness for me is just being present. Happiness for me is yeah, being present and being kind and just... I I mean, I can only say it's being present and it's being honest. Happiness, I believe, is rooted in truth and being your authentic self. Because I spent so long, obviously, with the bipolar disorder pretending... And on the outside, I appeared happy. I was prom queen. I was doing everything. I was 
striving to have this sort of body and image and everything for years since I can remember. I had no identity and had no sense of happiness. And then when I, well, I went to a mental hospital, right? And I kind of broke and I found like in those shattered pieces, my truth and my honest self. Because when something like that happens to you, you're like, that wasn't working. Whatever I was doing before, I let go of every expectation that I had. Just got three jobs, one as a nanny, one as a waitress. And I realized that happiness is found when you're being honest. It's found in your truth. Like If I'm being honest and living an authentic life, that's happiness for me. When you were... I didn't know you were a prom queen. Very cool. I was girl. nominated. Okay. I didn't make it though because I had a breakdown that <laughs> night. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Let's talk about that because I was going to, my question oh my for gosh. you was going to be what was that time of your life like and what was happening on a day to day basis? Man, if there could be mental health anywhere, it needs to be in high schools and yes. colleges because Preach. it's definitely, I love it when people say, would you go back to high school? I'm like, no. You know, they're like, people make such a big deal out of it. I would go back to high school in a heartbeat. I'm like, uh-uh, I would not. Hell no, go back to high school. And so the thing is, what that time was like, high school coming into my junior year, I would say, was I started to feel the symptoms of bipolar disorder. That is for sure, junior year. It was creeping It was present when I was a kid in the sense I was diagnosed with a learning disability. They called me Alice in Wonderland. I was very wandery, Um, but I was a good kid, you know, very kind. But in high school, junior year, I was an athlete. I was popular, not in the snotty cliche way. So I just want to make that clear. (laughs) But it was interesting because I saw the kids that got bullied and I always like connected with them in some way of being in alone in a weird way and on the outside, even though I was, you know, on the inside, I mean, too much so. And it seriously was like dressing up in a costume every day. And I remember I was nominated for prom queen and I was, I was, I also had an eating disorder at the time. I was bulimic. Went into the bathroom right while my day was waiting and I was all dressed up and, you know, my, beautiful, overpriced gown. And I looked at myself in the mirror and it was seriously, I got startled because I felt like I saw a stranger for a second, like literally got taken back almost as if someone was standing behind me. And I had, that was my first big breakdown. That was my first big breakdown. I would say I fell on the floor. I was screaming and my parents were like, what? And I stayed on the floor for three days and just didn't move. I was, I slept and I couldn't move. And that's when I was the first time I said to myself, there might be something else going on here, but you don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. Nobody talks about it. I went to the counselors. I was shoved off of this is a teenage thing. Um, I went to a woman once and she said, you're spoiled, you know, because I did come. I'm lucky in that sense. You know, I, I come from a well off, not well off, but you, you know what I mean. You come from money. I come you, from, You right. come from money. So no, you can't have a mental you health can't issue. Have, yeah. You had <laughs> oh a great, God. you live in the suburbs, <sighs> you know, you live in the suburbs, you're spoiled. And I'm thinking to myself, geez, I, 
I don't think I'm spoiled. I mean, I get good, but I'm not like one of those kids. Um, my parents would never, are you kidding me? But yeah, yeah, that was, and then going into college, I was great. I ignored it. Um, I dropped out, dropped, went back to the same college, but whoa, that was the time. I don't even remember. It's only been recently that when I went to a reunion with my best friends who are like my sisters that were with me during probably the worst time, I never allowed, allowed other people to talk about it. I it didn't not allow it. But when I got out of the mental hospital and kind of, I just put everything away and in my tone, it was clear that I did not want to talk about it, you know? And so I saw some of them that I hadn't seen for years because there was a lot of shame connected with it. And everybody was crying. And I said, it's time. And this was only a couple of years ago, like two years ago, you can share your story. Because I think that's important too, for other people to share their story and have that time. And they were telling me things I had no idea about I had a breakdown in front of like the therapy thing. And I said to myself, I don't remember that. And they were kind of taken back and so was I. So that was, that was a lot. I quit being an athlete. That was just a persona. And yeah, that was a great, I would say junior up until sophomore year of college. That's when shit hit the fan. Can we go back to prom? You have this whole thing. Yes. You're on the floor for three days. And then what happened after that? Oh, I got up. I washed my face, brushed my teeth and went back to school. And everybody said, what happened to you? Like, of course, there were rumors going around that I did a bunch of like drugs and... You're like, I wish you guys. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I kind of played around with it. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a charmer. I know how to... And that's what covered me is that I'm, I have charm. And so I know it's not manipulative. It's just, I know how to steer people away and pretend. I've been pretending my whole life. I've been an actress my whole life, you know? And so I know how to do it. And I just got up. I went, I went with the rumors um, and that was it. And nobody knew, you know, nobody knew because nobody would even question it. But I would ask my other girlfriends, you know, when we would be at lunch and stuff, when you guys get upset, you know, do you get, do you like get suicidal? Do you think about that? And they said, no, not really. We get upset. And I would see them and I started to gauge my emotions and the way I thought about things, even in a beautiful way. Even in a way that I looked at life and people in general and the way I connected empathetically. Um, but it's, you're different. And so you're trying to gauge because you'll be talking about something. Did you see? And, and have you ever thought about this meaning behind this? And they're like, what? You know, no. So yeah, that was nobody knew. It's only been recently that people from my high school that I grew up with have been like, I've never been so shocked about anything in my life because we it never... I won best smile. I mean, you have an amazing smile. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's the life of... It's the irony though of life, yes, right? Is. is that here is a girl and this is so many, you know? And people, I say to people... We don't think prom queens go to mental hospitals, but sadly, like, we don't believe that prom queens go to mental hospitals. They make up the majority in many ways. 
Because when I went, I saw a lot of that. And of course, a lot of, you know, on the other side of things. And that's even worse because people that leave don't have any resources, whereas I did in a sense. Um, It's just all... Yeah. So you have an eating disorder Mm -hmm. and you're dealing with bipolar, but you don't know at that time. right? So where was the eating disorder coming from? Okay. So the crazy thing about the eating disorder, I... And I'm so I'm writing like a book where I talk about this more and stuff. No, I'm not trying to plug it. I'm just please plug it. I'm gonna plug it so hard. No, no, yeah, no, no. I hate (laughs) it when people do that though. It's like, by the way, coming soon at you. But it's the first time I open up about it. And it's interesting because I've had to think about it. I'm great at desensitizing myself. So what's what and you know, I want to hear your experience too. I started with bulimia when I was nine, but I don't... And I felt weird about it. The craziest thing is, I don't know why. I can't remember what... There was no trigger. I don't even know, remember where I learned about it. And I remember knowing it was wrong because it felt wrong. But I felt the need to do it. I think part of it was the symptoms of bipolar, of feeling this need to punish yourself. And But with bulimia and the eating disorder, I was taller. I had bigger boobs. I could tell in my surroundings that my body was, you know, curvier. And I think that somehow I may have learned about it, but that is when it started. I remember I was nine because I asked my brother about it and he was shocked. And I saw his reaction. And so I kept it hidden. Well, he was older? He was a lot older. He was seven years older than me. And yeah. So you kept, so you had that experience, you kept it hidden. So your parents didn't know? No, nobody knew. Nobody knew. But were you getting really skinny or what was happening? Yeah. So, I mean, the thing is, right, I was skinny. So, I mean, I thought I didn't get really skinny because at nine, I would do it on and off. Mm. It was there, but it wasn't, it hadn't become a daily thing or anything at that point. Uh, but the first time in my ideas about it and doing it started at nine when I I got to high school and in junior year, that's when it picked up mm-hmm. big time. And uh, I my weight was so up and down. It was unbelievable. I don't think... And you know, we're tall. Mm-hmm. So we can, you know, we sneeze, we can lose weight. Yeah. I mean, if we really want to. But it would, I would go in and out within days of like 15, 20 pounds. Yeah. And when I became an athlete, I was an athlete going into college. My body was all messed up because they, they had, I was taking at one point, the counselor had put me on some medication where I gained like 20, 30 pounds. But the athletic, and I felt so out of place in my body. I felt it just, of course, every body is beautiful, no matter your weight, but it's also what you feel comfortable in. Right. And um, I remember the athletic trainer, I would go in and out of 15, 20 pounds up and down. And he said, was suspicious. 
of what was going on about how a person could drop that kind of weight and then go back up. And that's and then also I went to the dentist and the dentist saw the back oh. of my teeth and immediately I said to myself, this isn't good. So that's when it got bad again, junior and definitely in college. It was bad because people became suspicious. And as you can tell, probably so far, I'm pretty good at hiding things. Mm. So... And what was going through your mind as to why you needed to be bulimic and and keep yourself small? Oh, I thought I was fat. And I thought that being anything above a size two, I was around girls that were, you know, very skinny. And skinny in the sense of even I look at my body, it would be impossible. I mean, when you're tall and stuff. Yeah, we can never look like that. Like this, you know, five foot seven. I'm thinking to myself, I could never even get my body to that place. And I had a very warped perception of the way that I looked. You know, I think that I just didn't feel comfortable in who I was, what I looked like and everything about myself. And I think honestly, I was punishing myself for not understanding, for feeling more, for not being like everybody else. I did not feel pretty. I felt my curves were disgusting. And because that's what we're told, you know, it's there's a certain thing. And if you don't fit that thing, then you need to get there. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, you're on the outside and you're not pretty or anything, but that's changed over time. Yeah, I think it was the way thing. I was very, very, very disconnected from my body. Now that, now that, how old are you? I'm just, I just turned 29. Little baby. Well, I'm 31. I I mean, I'm not that much older, but you know. Two years, I know. Um, In your 20s though, it's like a year is a difference. Oh, right. God, it's so crazy. Now that you're in the place where you are in your growth and your journey and you know what it feels like to be in your body, Mm -hmm. how do you describe the difference? Because I, I think a lot of us don't realize when we're not connected to our bodies and when we're not here, we're not present like you were talking about. How, how it can feel different so that people are more aware of maybe someone listening right now can pinpoint, oh, actually, I feel that way. Yeah. You mean feel better? And stuff. Yeah. And like you went from being disconnected to connected and what the differences are now that you know. Oh, it's unbelievable. It's a, it's a confidence that is, again, ingrained more so mm-hmm. that your insecurities no longer prevent you from living. And you'll go out and you can be yourself and you're not as self-conscious and you become very more so confident in who you are, which you become connected um, to your reflection when you've become truly okay with yourself. And That's easy to say, right? Become okay. It's from the inside to the outside. I was one of those that was so against it. Sure it is. Okay, right? It's so true though. You just have an ingrained confidence of being whole almost. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas you're constantly at that time trying to mold yourself into something, Mm -hmm. a body, a a face, a thing, you know, you're, you're molding. And right now it's just, you're here Mm -hmm. and you, you love it. 
And I think that the big realization for me, and this only happened two years ago. Um, I think it's growing too older, getting older too. Yeah. Your early 20s, let me tell you, I love getting older. Oh my God, I hated my early 20s. I hated myself. Hate. And that time of my yep. life was so brutal. I, I had fun. And let me tell you, I lived my uh, my <laughs> 20s. Like I'll never look back and say I didn't live it hard. I'll never do that. I mean, come on. Uh, but a little too much. But I love getting older because you do become a little bit wiser and more confident in yourself where in your early 20s. Anyways, but I was very skinny and in the best shape of my life. I was en route to graduating, felt like I was gaining my purpose, my passion, started advocating. But there was something still not there. I was still not connecting. And I'm like, I'm at in the best shape. I'm doing all of these things. I don't get what's going on. My mother said, go to therapy again. I've always struggled with therapy, especially after going to the mental hospital. Therapy is great. I think every person should have a therapist. But when you've been taken to the mental hospital and I was involuntarily placed, I was put in handcuffs. And just by saying one word, I lost a very big trust for people in general. And then for anybody associated with mental health. Uh, and I didn't connect. I would sit on the couch and play the whole game of, you know, say what they want and leave. Well, I found a therapist. I switched to a man. And I think for me, that was important because I had such a strong male figure, which was my father. And I said... I talked about these insecurities, but I didn't think it was going to work. And he totally framed me and he figured me out, this guy, in a minute. He was very quiet. And I thought, oh, whatever. But I kept going. He knew if he was quiet, if he catered to me and did the, mm, mm, I would, I don't like that because I don't like people feeling bad. I feel, you know, the eyes and, oh, yes, tell me more. I'm like, oh, no. Okay. And so he knew if he was quiet, I would eventually just start talking because I despise awkward like silence. Despise it. And he got me there a little bit. And he told me, I started talking about my insecurities. He told me, bring in five, Picture, 10 pictures of yourself randomly from the years. I did it really quickly, brought them in, laid them out. I had no idea what he was doing. And he told me, look down at these pictures. And I looked at them and he said, because you've had an eating disorder and you have a major self-abuse problem, what did you think of yourself in each one of those pictures? Because I know that you remember. And it was a game. It changed my life because I looked down and I can remember when the picture was posted on Facebook and my reaction in the exact thing. And I thought I was disgusting and just not at a good place in my life. I was insecure and I'm looking at it. And seriously, it was delusional how I thought because I was underweight at one point. And I remember looking at those pictures and thinking, look how big my leg, look how big I look. And it almost looked Photoshopped. And he said to me, 
you've never loved yourself in the present and you never will. So what you're doing to yourself now of trying to be at a better point, you're always going to do... This is going to be... You have a cycle of self-abuse, of torturing yourself. And you're looking back and saying, why didn't you love her? Because she was growing and she wasn't in a bad place. She was learning and she was beautiful and everything. You're going to also do that in a year with today. And it just changed my whole entire life because I said to myself, you're right. Like I have to love myself in the present. And it's hard self-love, but being in the present and loving who you are right now and not waiting for a number on the scale or anything and learning, even when you're low or not feeling well and reminding yourself, every single day I'm beautiful. It manifests itself over time. And to be able to, for the first time in my life, love myself in the present is beautiful. Wow. Yeah, I know. Sorry. That was a That is amazing. No, I love that so much because this speaks to a lot of the work I talk about is the inner child work, right? Oh, okay. Tell me. And looking at the little girl within you Mm. that is wounded and broken and not feeling seen and heard or understood Mm -hmm. or accepted. And it's amazing that you were able to look at like the multiple versions of your inner child and see the way you were hurting her. Yeah. Like, holy shit. Yeah. And I talk a lot about as I've gotten into this work and I'm still really new to it, but I will invite like the five-year-old version of like little Kelly to sit next to me on the couch and just ask her what she needs and ask her how she's feeling. Oh my God. And it's like, I'm rewriting the script for my childhood in that. And she didn't feel heard and seen then, but now she can. And then you heal those wounds. And I feel like that's what you were able to do. Oh my gosh, Kelly, that's amazing. Isn't that amazing? I think when you have a physical idea of something, it's a lot easier to talk to something, uh, to someone. And that is beautiful. Yeah. No, that was it to finally see that and have that realization and say and tell that person who is you that they were okay and they were beautiful and they were worthy. And to see how long it was, was how long this had been going on, was it took me back. And I'm, you know, I went to a mental hospital. It's hard to shock me. So, you know, like once you've been there, I know people always say to me, oh, you know, I bet I could tell you about a shocking moment in my life. I'm like, sure, buddy, you know, on a date or something. I'm like, yeah, tell me about your shocking moment. Okay. Yeah, no, I get it. So amazing. You can one up anybody on yeah, anything. Yeah, I'm like, mm-hmm, tell me about the yeah. ridiculousness you're of your like, life. You're patting someone on the like, head. Oh, oh, that's cute. Oh, that's cute. Yeah, sure. You went to a frat party, like you chugged something. Okay, I went to a mental hospital. So, as Hannah and I have been talking about this show, it is so important to me to be transparent and to really share in our healing journeys together. Because as you guys know, you listen to this show every week. When we collectively come together and gather and support one another, we heal. We need to do it as a village. No one can go through this alone and no one should ever have to feel alone. 
So on October 5th here in Los Angeles, I will be hosting Ceremony Wellness Live. So think of the podcast every week in a live setting where you actually get to go hug Dr. Lekos and you and I get to have a little chat and we will share everything we know with you. An entire day of wellness and spiritual development and just coming back to ourselves and having an opportunity to grow. So excited. So if you go to kellytenant.com slash live, you can get your tickets and I cannot wait to see you. Did you ever, as I was listening to you, something resonated with me and I've, yeah. our, our stories, stories very different, but very similar very in a lot of ways, similar. which is super yeah. cool. But I always wanted to escape my body. Oh my gosh. And yes. I was suicidal when I was 12. You were. And I, I just kept feeling like my soul was like, get me out, get me out. And trying to like go through my head and escape my body. And I didn't want to be here. And I, same as you, didn't feel connected to myself and hated my life. And I didn't understand why I stood out so much. And I was tall and I was smart and I was kind of weird and whatever. And so I kept wanting to escape my body. And I think that the, the suicidal thing, I never actually tried to kill myself. But I think that was just a way for me to understand how I... I couldn't handle it and I didn't want to be here because I didn't understand what was happening. Did you ever feel like you wanted to just like escape your body? Is that oh, kind of yeah. how you would describe it? Yeah, that's just like you were saying. I wanted to escape my body. And I think also I wanted something to escape me. Mm. You know, I wanted something to come out because self harm, that's uh, people think self harm is a way to kill yourself or or commit suicide and it's not i was i've been self harming i still you know have struggled with it in my late 20s can you explain what self harm oh, yeah. is so self harm is you know pain infliction to oneself basically you punish yourself you can do it i mean not triggering so the idea you have i always tell people the idea you have about people self harming cutting or doing any of that is what it is. You're inflicting pain on yourself. And that's what I did for a very long time. And what it was, I never did it with suicide being the end goal. I was trying to have something as maybe crazy as it sounds, escape me. I felt like like you pop a balloon for the helium to come out. I truly believed by doing that, maybe something would come out of me. Maybe I could release what was in escape, you know, whatever was going on like inside. Like a darkness or an yes. energy or like... An energy. Like almost like an exorcism as like right. far out as that I, is. No, it's You're like, not. get this out. Get this out. Yeah. You're trying... Right. You're trying to escape yourself like you, Kelly and Hannah... Right. And you're also trying to get something out of you. It's a really, and to be 12, I mean, that is so young. And I mean, I know you can relate to this. Not knowing what's going on is sometimes I look back and I say, the thought of how horrible I felt at that time now is nauseating to think that that young to be so confused. It was the confusion too about what was going on, you know, inside. Was it confusion too of like, you knew you were different, so you didn't know where you fit? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, you fit 
because you know how to fit. You know what I mean? You know how to play the cards of what fit means. And so I fit, but I didn't. I, I felt very different from everyone. I learned differently. And the thing about the education system is it's a standard curriculum. And if you don't learn that way, you're getting failed and stuff. That was me. I don't do... I you know said that I was diagnosed with a learning disability with I can't focus very well. Um, hence why probably at some point I'll be like, wait, where are we going? I'll see a squirrel jump by. <laughs> but the thing is, yeah, the standard way of teaching, I did not learn the same as other people. And I just very much had a different mindset as everyone else. Everything was very emotional based where other people were very on the surface about everything. And I felt weird. And I hid my creative abilities that have been there since I was a child, my imagination. I, I actually portrayed the complete opposite. I became very tough, put that act on. I became tomboyish and hid all of that because I didn't want people to see that side of me because I felt like it represented weakness. I felt like if they saw that, then they would see the other parts of me that were so emotional and so different. Ooh, you're speaking to me right now. Right? Yeah. So I, like you, felt like an actress my whole life. And it wasn't until I quit my job last year that I was able to break free of like what I call the double life I was living. Oh my gosh. And I am very emotional. I'm very sensitive. I'm an introvert, highly sensitive person, very intuitive super spiritual. I've gone like real woo-woo. And I never allowed myself to be that person because in the world that I came from, male-dominated sports and being a TV host, you got to look a certain way and act a certain way, right? And, And play the part. And I did that very well. But then I didn't realize how exhausting it was to be someone I didn't resonate with and to hide the amazing parts of my heart and soul that I I just couldn't share with the world right. because I was so scared of being judged and misunderstood. Because when I was in third grade, my teacher called me an outlier. And at eight years old to be called an outlier, I was like, game over. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I'm not shining anymore. No. You know, because I didn't understand what it meant. And I also didn't realize that it was okay and actually wonderful to not fit in right. and to share those parts of yourself. Right. And that being weird is cool. Right. Exactly. We're so similar in that way. Mm-hmm. And it's a it's a problem. I have eight nieces and nephews. Mm. Uh, my brothers. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> but I have eight nieces and nephews. And that has taught me so much because now they're get, getting older. The oldest, two of them are like nine, 10 years old. And when my nieces turn nine, that like with the bulimia... And me seeing them, it's mind-blowing. And I hear the way they speak about things. They watch these shows. I want to be prom queen. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, no, you don't. You know, I want to be that girl. And they say weird as a bad thing. It's weird. And I now am in the position where I feel lucky because I I don't like to lecture kids, you know, and sit down. Let me tell you a story. I think they can speak like adults. 
And so I sit down, I don't sit down with them. I say to them, I like being weird. You know, weird is out there. Kids are, because I want so badly for that, even if it's a little bit to be ingrained, because I know that that's not going to happen when they go. And the pressure will be there. And I would never want them. I know they'll have their insecurities like we all do. But like you said, how severe it was. I mean, one of my nephews is almost going to be 12 in a year and a half. And you were suicidal Mm -hmm. at that age. Right. And we have this idea. And I want the kids to know that it's okay to be different. It's cool. And I hope they see that in my actions and what I say. Because when they go to school and are kind of out there, that's the opposite is portrayed, Mm -hmm. you know? As you have lived with bipolar and have worked in the mental health space, words can be super triggering, right? And words can have a lot of power. And you talk about like crazy or um, like she went crazy or she's so weird. How do you approach using those words and... For someone that may not be dealing with a mental right. health issue, how how can we teach people to, I don't know, talk about it in a different way? Right. Yes. Language and words are so powerful. There, It's such a powerful tool that we have with us every day and it should be used correctly. I'm not overly sensitive with the words crazy. You know, if someone says mental, mentally ill or something, I feel like those words to be sensitive, I would be calling people out all day then because I hear yes. it about 80 million times. It represents something different when someone says, oh, she's crazy, whatever. That's a separate thing. That's what I tell people. Yeah, she might be crazy. That's different from having a mental illness. What I think people, where it gets and becomes too much is when people use names of that's so bipolar. That's so... The bipolar thing is very bad about the way that people use it or she's got some type of depression or something like that. You know, they're depressed or when you see a mean person or... If somebody does anything bad, you've got a mental illness. It's really in the context in which you say it. If you're just gabbing about something, whatever, you use the word crazy or you say something about mental illness and and it's in a different context, that's fine. But when it's in a context of really using those words to represent a bad person that you don't know has a diagnosis and associating those two, like you go to a party and there's a guy that's a jerk, right? And he's maybe a little bit off and you come back and you're talking with your friends and you say he's mentally ill. That's when it becomes a problem because now all of those people at that table associate mental illness again with bad and weird and corrupt. And that's not the case or violent. Every time someone... And that's a big thing for people to realize is that statistically, people with a mental illness are 10 times more likely to be victims of violence. Um, It's 3 to 5%. Don't... I'm pretty sure that's it. I'm not great with stats. But uh, of people 
commit a crime with the violence thing, when you see a show or you hear about a shooting or you see anything happen and you say that person is mentally ill and you don't know that, that is, it's all about the context in which you use it. And I get stigma every single day. I've been in situations where like recently, there was a girl that was saying the word bipolar over and over and over again. She kept saying she's bipolar and about her crazy friend. And at one point, it had become too much. And I said, you know, girl, you don't follow me on Instagram? Like, come on. I have... Hey, you better gram me. Yeah. That's the first problem. Yeah. And then... yeah, you to the real issue here. The real issue is that you don't hit me on the gram. And (laughs) the thing is, I said, I have bipolar disorder and I do it as a shock factor because forever she'll realize because nobody would pinpoint it. So I think for people to know is... Would you ever say... And I don't like to compare illnesses because everything is different. And definitely cancer is its own beast. I, I don't even go there. But would you ever say, see someone overweight or something? Or I don't know, see someone maybe overweight and go, they're so diabetic. Or they're, they must have diabetes or something. You probably wouldn't. No. You know, you probably wouldn't. Or would you do that and say that about any type of disability uh, about someone? And I guess you can say, I don't like to say cancer, but just to put it in a context of if you, would you ever say it's so derogatory about someone? No, you would probably more so empathize and sympathize. Uh, You have to think that way when it comes to mental illness and language right now is what is really, it's killing people, you know, the type of language that we use. So I would just, everybody's going to slip, including myself, but remember the context in which you're saying it. What does this word represent? Who am I talking about? I'm talking about someone that I I don't know has bipolar disorder, but they did something out there. Am I going to say that because I'm representing and stereotyping a whole category of people as being something? Why do you feel that mental health, mental illness has such a stigma around it? And why is it that we are so quick to throw out, oh, she's so bipolar, but we would never be like, oh, she must have cancer. You know, like, why? It's, I think... Of course. So I read a lot. Okay. And stigma has been ingrained in our society since the 1800s. The, one of the first mental hospitals was in Pennsylvania. I want to say Benjamin Franklin, but do not, again, I'm pretty sure because I wrote a thesis paper on it. And the first thing that was in the paper, which the paper was the news and the paper and reading was the way you got and interpreted any information, obviously, the 1800s. And in the newspaper, one of the lines, the first line said, for the deranged, the mental hospital has just opened the psychiatric clinic, uh, for the deranged, unstable wanderers on the streets and, you know, awful things. Well, boom, that's where it started Because that is the only way people got information, just like today with the news and everything. 
we're talking the 1800s. And so a lot of it has to do with the media and the way we've represented it. I mean, scary movies, you know, scary movies dressing up for Halloween as a mentally ill person in North Carolina. There was a a dilemma with that two years ago. Who does that? That's so... In North Carolina (laughs) with Dorothea Dix Hospital, which is one of the biggest ones in the Halloween shops. This was only two years ago. They had costumes from Dorothea Dix of mentally ill people. This is two years ago. That's insane. insane. See, that's crazy. (laughs) Yes, that really is crazy. And going back to the language thing, that's what I always say to people is that's crazy. And I separate myself. Mm -hmm. Like I know crazy people, but that doesn't mean you have a mental illness. Right. Trust me. There's a lot of nut jobs in this world, but it's not us actually. It's other people if you want to be honest. But the thing is, so the media, the other side of it is we don't we reject what we don't understand. And if we can't see it, in many ways, we don't believe it. So because we don't have an actual test or the people are back and forth on and today, if it's mental illness real or not, that's also the other side of it. And one message that I am a little bit... And I know it's a huge thing. And I do, of course, believe in mindfulness. I know spirituality. I am as well is that there has to be a common like togetherness of mental illness is real and it does exist and it's not a mindset and you can't get out of it. Instead, we have some people who believe that then some people that have told me all you have to do is do yoga and you know drink a green smoothie every morning and you're going to be fine and that is just Nobody knows exactly. And it's like, you can say that and that's fine. But you have to make it clear that also mental illness is real. There are people... I can't. I did that. I know it. I'm very confident in the fact that I do have to take medications. I wouldn't be alive because it's a disease. Um, So that's the other problem is that we can't come to a common agreement we don't separate it enough. I've been told that I, I love holistic. I, I love all of that. When I'm doing yoga and connected spiritually, that's when I'm at my best. But it's not going to erase mental illness, you know? So I think that also contributes to the stigma is the fact that it's not real and you can change your mind. You know, you just have to gain clarity. And I'm thinking to myself, I I don't think so. I mean, I I don't think I think that's an important element, but no, it won't cure me. But the media is the biggest thing, the way we use language, and then coming to a common agreement about the fact that it does exist and it's real and it's in your brain. It's a brain disease. I think something that comes up for me a lot is when I when I was first sick, mm-hmm. um, when I got my autoimmune yeah. disease and I was super depressed, mm-hmm. they put me on antidepressants. Mm-hmm. Like it was like Oh, right. you're tired and you're sad. Right, Let's right. not talk about the fact that your whole life was mm-hmm. just ripped away from you. And that's probably why you're sad. Yeah, Let's no. put you on a pill. Right. I don't think that that was right. No. And no. I think that this is where we walk this fine line yes. of 
I needed to work through my shit Mm -hmm. to come out on the other side. I needed to be mindful, do yoga, have clarity, eat the right food so that I didn't have brain fog, like think clearly. And I think that in this society, you have someone that is dealing with bipolar disorder that needs to be on medication. You have someone that doesn't like their life at the time and isn't willing to work through their stuff. And so they're called, quote unquote, depressed or have anxiety or because they can't sleep, then they're put on a pill. These are such different scenarios. Yes, yes. How do we navigate that? And how do we, maybe as someone who is dealing with depression, that's not necessarily a mental illness. Right. You know, where right. it's like oh, yeah. not a chemical derivative yes. of something. Like how do we walk that line? Yeah, that's so true. I mean, I see people and you don't ever want to get on a medication. I think it's way too quick to be like, it's tossing pills in people's mouths. And you're right. Everybody gets suppressed. Everybody goes through something in their life. They don't have to necessarily be on medication. I think the way that we walk this fine line, and of course, therapists, psychiatrists, psychologists are the best. I wouldn't be here without mine. However, it took way too long for me to get a good one. Um, I went through about 30 because a lot of them didn't listen and wanted to control. And they were the ones that were going to decide. And I'm thinking, I'm not a patient. I'm a client. You know, I want to work together. I think a lot of it has to do with really proper testing. Okay, so we can't see it, but you know, what are your symptoms? Okay, yep, yep, sad, Hannah, you stay you stay up. I mean, for me it was completely evident and it ran in my family mm. as we found out. Yeah, it's funny because people just started coming out of the woodwork yeah. about, yeah, I'm like, me too. <laughs> yep. Right. Right. Remember that cousin you had? Well, but I think it's too quick, you know, to, to just, and to put it with someone because people will come to me that are in their fifties and say, I've never been on medication and I have bipolar. I was diagnosed. And I think to myself, I don't think so, you know, because you wouldn't, if you've never been and treated for bipolar at that time, you were misdiagnosed. I think it's all about really serious, proper testing, not just filling in the box. First of all, people can lie. Okay. If people want to get on a prescription pill, if they want to be, which I don't know why you would want to be diagnosed or have that on your record of being, because that changes everything when the minute they write those words. I think there needs to be a real, uh, a higher level of testing and people that truly care and look at people as an individual and go through that testing because it's just, you walk in, check, check, check. Okay, Hannah, here's, you know, a sedative where I'm drooling. My, you know, drooling. And my mom found me one time in a, a cereal bowl. Literally, I was drinking milk. And the woman was saying, oh, well, you know, you can work now. I'm thinking, I, my face was just in Fruit Loops. I mean, are you, you can't be serious, you know? I just, I have milk mustache still to my face because I was sleeping in Fruit Loops. And, you know, although, I mean, the sedatives are terrible. We're too quick to, it's whatever. And that it's a bit, to get a misdiagnosis is a big deal. You know, and if you imagine if someone then and you did have bipolar disorder, or schizophrenia or something, and 
somebody didn't take it seriously and said, do this, I mean, then you would be in trouble as well. And there was an article actually recently that I shared about it's double the amount of kids going to the ER for suicide. I saw it the other day and I was shocked. So again, I'm not a statistic person. I just have to make that clear. I know I've said it, but one thing that I want people to be aware of too is that the mental health problem, we have this idea and I think a lot of people need to step up to the plate in this sense of portraying this idea that mental health is going away, suicide is getting better. It's barely, you know, it's not anywhere where it needs to be. The researchers are very concerned about a younger age between 12, 10, and 14 now, 10 years old, and it's doubling. And right now, one person dies by suicide every 40 seconds somewhere around the world. And there has been research that has said, if the mental health epidemic continues by 2020, which is less than a year, it'll be one person every 20 seconds. So we all have to step it up and kind of what's going on. We need to be real about, you know, and and really speak up about living with bipolar disorder and reducing that shame instead of just share your story. Some people can't do that. Yeah. They'll lose their job. Why do why do you, so why do you think that the 10 to 14 year olds is increasing like so quickly. Yeah, you know, I've thought about it myself. I think one big problem is suicide. I haven't watched 13 Reasons. Or, have you? Yes. Now, what do you think about it? I thought it was incredible. I think that some people feel that it glorifies it. Yeah. In a way, I didn't get that at all. Mm-hmm. And especially as someone who has, you know, gone through similar oh, yeah, things, I right. was kind of like, this is so important. I I remember Instagramming about mm. it, telling every parent to watch the oh, show. Even you. if your kid doesn't watch it, you need to watch it because you need to know what yeah. the hell's happening, what these kids are thinking. Yeah. There was um there was a sexual assault and rape in the show. Yeah. And then she was hiding it. And yeah. like that stuff happens so often and we don't yeah. feel comfortable telling our parents. And then we're living this like darkness oh, and this yeah. lie. And I thought... You know, and Selena Gomez creating the show. I think she was the oh, executive she producer. Did? Yeah, she's like huge in I this mental her. health space. You know. Oh yeah, and she went to a mental hospital yeah, too. She she did the show. Yeah, and I think that they did it so beautifully in a way that it was entertaining and it was you know kind of a suspenseful show yeah. that people could enjoy, but it also hit the point home so hard. I love that. Yeah. No, I've heard both sides of it. Mm-hmm. Of course, I should have watched it. I don't. When people tell me to watch those kind of shows, I don't because I don't want to get into... I don't want to get too caught up in that because if I went after every show, the one thing I've only talked about is like the bird box or something. I thought thought that was overdone with the evil people kind of being represented as people with a mental illness. But I don't get caught up because everybody has a different thing. But you've been through that. And so if you're saying that, then... I trust it. Um, and I know that it's probably true. I think the reason that this age is, is because of bullying. Okay. So, and I've talked to my parents, we have this argument. It's you just say, hey, we had bullies back in the day. And I say to them, but you went, you got into a fight at the playground, the play yard, everybody cheered, someone knocked somebody out, whatever. And then you left. 
and you went home and you ate dinner and the weekends were with your friends and whatever and you went to school and now it follows you everywhere. I have said to myself that, and I, I've never bullied anyone and I don't think there is an excuse for it at all. And I was going through something as well. And that's one thing I pride myself on. I was never mean to kids because I think inside I knew the damage it would do. I think bullying now in the digital age, the millennial age with social media, with everything that we have, it follows you. These kids are going through torture. There are also, if you can believe it, um, I studied media communication and this was a big thing is sites about killing yourself and people in chat rooms telling you how to do it. And that's insane. That is insane. And a lot of kids have followed through because they go through this. Now they have a world that's almost encouraging it. And again, now these kids are leaving the schoolyard playground and then they're on the internet and social media and someone's spreading a bad message and getting bad texts. And it's a nightmare for kids and it's torture and it never ends. And I think that is the biggest difference. I truly believe one day that out of anything, bullying should be a form of harassment. Kids should be getting in way more trouble than they do. And even adults for bullying, it is a form of almost... If someone punched somebody in the face, they would get in trouble. If they brought a knife and cut somebody, they would. It's the same. You know, I mean, I think that's the biggest reason why that age group is getting heavier with the suicide because it doesn't stop with the bullying. You know, if you're... There's a lot of kids that are conflicted with their sexuality, you know, and people see it and calling them gay, putting it on social media and they're on their phone and it literally is trapped with them. So it's kind of like, what do you expect them to do? I have a lot of moms that listen to this show and you dads do? too, which, uh, and most of my friends have kids. I love that. Um, which it makes me super happy because I think these conversations are impacting in such a powerful way. And we are... We are learning how to help this next generation in a big way. So for, for parents listening to this that want to talk to their kids about these things yeah. and support them and also talk about bullying and, hey, if you see this little girl being bullied, here's what you can do or here, is, here are things you don't do or you do do. Like, What would your guide, guidance be there? My guidance would be to be completely honest. Okay, because it depends on what age. Okay, yeah. not your four-year-old. Yeah. If the world we live on these right now with the shootings and everything, I know probably as a parent, um, I'm not a parent. It seems it's a very tricky conversation. You don't want to horrify the kids or anything. It's not horrifying. It's what's in their reality. It's almost like a war going on and you not telling the kids, oh, well, you know, sometimes there's a big noise that goes off and really it's a, you know, a bomb or something. Well, it's not as intense as war, but there's a lot of things going on. I think if your kids are definitely in their teen years and even younger, I mean, I've talked about, you said about suicide at 12. 
is to show them visually, okay, not just wait, hear me out, not like visually of it, but to show them this is what suicide is and to show them pictures of kids that have done it. Not too intense, right? I mean, obviously that probably sounds, whoa, that's too much, but it's not because it's doubling and increasing. These are their classmates. We want to protect them and that's preventing them because this is reality. And when a child sees, I believe, I was a nanny for seven years. And so I realized when a child can put those words to an image and you say, do you see this little you know, boy, This he was your age and he was being bullied and he killed himself, that's going to go through the kid more so. And he's going to realize the seriousness of it versus if you're at the dinner table, well, some people do this. It's not some people. It's a lot. And it's in their age. And I think kids are not as immature as we treat them. And if you look them in the eyes and you're like, this kid, the kid is going to see a kid his age that was just like him, that looked like him, and did that. Now they know the extent of bullying. And you can say, then you start the conversation of, so do you realize the when you see that happening, it's a serious situation. And you never, you would never want somebody, then they're going to get more serious. Whereas when we have these other little conversations, they don't get the depth. They don't um, get the seriousness. Also, social media and media platforms kids are on, I, of course, it has its cons, but it's also got its pros big time. Me, I have a social media and I have bipolar. Introducing your teenage kids to say something I learned about and, and reading these blogs about eating disorders and stuff of people that look like them that are expressing themselves, it's good. Visuals are always good. Because then they're going to disconnect. So if somebody says bipolar, they're going to think of the girl that their parents were showing them versus, you know, I know it's hard. I'm sure it is as a parent, but I think that is the best way. You don't want to sugarcoat around it because it's very serious. Um, and if you don't think it could happen to your kid, a lot of other parents thought that too. And they didn't know what was going on. And if your kid comes to you and really says there are pro- there's a problem, don't shove it off. You know, yeah, don't shove it off. Make sure that it's not, it might not be a teenage thing. It could be, but what if it's not? You, I always think about what's the consequence of me not doing anything. And those consequences are pretty severe. Because Hannah is such an incredible writer, journaling, of course, is a part of her life and it's a part of mine. And so many people that I really respect in this space have taken journaling to the next level. And when I created the journal for our community, I really kept in mind that I wanted to make sure we had the mind-body connection, that we were creating a space that was safe, where you could grow and reflect and really call in things you want and let go of the things that no longer serve you. So if you head to kellytenant.com slash journal, you can get our resource, which is led by the full moons and the new moons. And there's free writing space. There's also prompts so that you can really get into your gratitude and manifest and talk about self-care and how you're feeling physically on a day-to-day basis. 
I'm so excited to share the mornings with you and journal and really just come back to ourselves and figure out what it is that we need to be our best selves and live our best lives. I've noticed you said you have bipolar. Is there a difference for you between I have bipolar and I'm living with bipolar? Um, no. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah. yeah, no. Um, I'll say I'm living with bipolar disorder in some um, context, like when I'm writing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have, I'm mm-hmm. living with, mm-hmm. I know. I, I don't say I am. Right. You know, I'm bipolar, but I slip. I yeah. slip too. I'm not overly conscious with that because, well, it's, you know, it's that thing where if you have it, you can say whatever you want, but that's not necessarily (laughs) true. Yeah. But there's so many other, I think, in the big way of other people using language, you learn, you learn. And I don't want to call out every person that says something. Mm -hmm. I can just teach them in my actions and they'll learn that way. Um, So no, I say both. When you came out of the mental hospital and how long were you in there? So I was in there for about 20 days. Yeah. 20. Now some people are there for a lot longer. Right. But so, that charm came through. Ah. Uh, so you're you come out of there and then what happened with your life after that? Oh my gosh. I came out. And how old were you? So I had just turned 20. Wow. Yeah, I had just turned 20. So when you go to a mental hospital, well, I was involuntarily placed. So literally, I was at a normal hospital and I woke up. I didn't even know I was being sedated. And my parents didn't know either. And you say a lot of mom and dads listen to this, right? So I went and they said, have you ever had suicidal thoughts? Well, obviously, you know, I said, well, yeah, I don't mentally, you know, feel that well. And I woke up in handcuffs. And the state took me into their custody. And who does that, right? That's what happens to you. Oh, because you weren't a minor anymore. So they didn't have to tell your parents. Exactly. Holy shit. Right. Can you... I can't imagine your poor parents. Oh, (gasps) my dad went to war. He's in the Marines. And he said, I've never seen that man even shake or any fear. But I remember he said he's been to war. He's had a pretty rough life growing up. You would never know it because he's just so non-emotional about it. But I saw my father and he said, that's the scare. He didn't know what to do because he was there. The police came in and they, they, by the way, that's what happens to people that commit a crime. Like, you know, Lacey P, you know, those big time, they don't even get that kind of treatment. The big time criminals and stuff. Anyway, And not only that, what made me so upset was they were taking me, they put me in the back of a cop car, but they said to my parents, you can't know where she's going for 10 days and she won't be in contact with you. Literally, my parents had to give they could do. And my my dad used to, you want to protect your child. You feel like there's, you can always do something, but to literally be told there's nothing, no lawyers. My dad was like, I'll get the lawyers in here. But you know why? Because of course they said I'm a harm to myself and society. Okay, so like that is one thing. I've never, by the way, been violent out. I didn't do anything. I know nobody found me. I walked into a regular hospital and that was it. And this is why important parents know because they don't know that. And your kid could easily get sent with the wrong language. You know, Um, you say one thing, they'll throw you in a mental hospital like nothing. And so 
Yeah, and they took me, and my and that was the thing I was upset about because my parents to go through that, not knowing where I was, and I was far. I was very far away. I was hours away. Oh my! God. Yeah. So then I went. You get everything stripped from you. Um, my shoes, my everything. I felt like I was stigmatized. I got my shoelaces t- taken out. And I remember hearing the clack of my sneakers and thinking of a horror movie mm. that like, you know, that clack that the girl's hiding in the closet at the mental hospital. Anyways, you get stripped of your identity, your watch while you brush your teeth, you get stripped of everything. So when I, and I had a good experience, I always try to look at the silver lining. Of course, it was very difficult, but the people made it. I think they were a gift and they were the reason I was supposed to be there. But you get stripped of everything. So when I walked out, I had no... It was like starting over. And I just thought... I got the diagnosis and it's like they put you on a road towards failure. Good luck. There is no pamphlet about you can live a good life. Embrace who you are. No. Forget that. See ya. Here's the thing. I was required to go to therapy three times a week for like a year. Let me tell you something. That was a lot. Um, Yeah, I don't care how many problems you have. How do you talk three times a week? Three times I was making up stuff. I mean, I was like, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I was looking around the room for something to talk about. I mean... That was a lot and going to the doctor and I had to live at home for a while and be under guidance and all of that. I felt like it was a sense of, I was weirdly petrified and also very calm because for the first time in my life, I was broke. I had broke and I was free though. Nobody now, everybody knew. Like when someone goes to a mental hospital, it's like all of your cards are laid out on the table. There is a problem. And I felt free. And when you feel like you're on a road to failure, you're like, all right, whatever. I had no expectations. But day by day, I went when I got out and I truly from there molded myself into my own person. I got a job. I was a waitress. I worked three jobs, which was very good. And as time, I just went with life and didn't force anything. Um, And things kind of manifested themselves, went with my passion. And slowly, just by doing little things and getting out there, it all came. But when I left, I, I didn't know what happened. I kept everything hidden, obviously. Uh, for years. I mean, and, you know, a lot of the things that I talk about now, nobody knows. But yeah, it's emptying. It's emptying when you get out. It's like, what do I do? I have bipolar. I never even knew what it was. Did you, when you left the hospital, were you already on medication? No. Oh, so when well, did they that sedate, happen? sedate you when yeah. you, oh my Lord, you are on some medications when you're there. Is it true, like, I only know from movies, right? Yeah. You oh, like Lord. walk in a line, you have to go up and get your pills. Okay, and so, They watch you and then check your mouth okay, to see. So that is actually true. Mm. That's true. I would go up, you get them in those little paper cups and they do the mouth thing. That was true, which I was kind of happy about because I'm like, that's one thing they're getting right. Yeah. 
And that was true. And let you know, when I tell you that you're knocked out and you're done so McFunzo, it's unbelievable. I mean, you know, talk about a good night's sleep. I've never been in there's a lot of things in the mental health system and I don't blame it on the people working there because they're just trying to make money, right? And do their job. They're following a protocol and I do blame the people instilling that protocol because it's not right. You know, it's not right the way that people are treated there and stuff. So at what point did you get on the proper bipolar medication? Oh, well, I went back and I started experimenting and it took me... The proper ones took about four years and I had to be assertive. I went in, I started going in because I was so done with getting these because nobody let me have, I was, you know, in quote unquote crazy. So they know what's best for me. I had a um, a psychologist look up at their degree and they, I said to them, I want to have input. I don't want you to strip me of my personality. I like to be energetic. I'm not going to be sedated at all. Sleeping for 12 hours a day, that's not healthy. Oh, and the woman looked up at her degree from you know a fancy school and said, I'm the expert and you're the patient. And I said, oh, Lord, have mercy. I've been kicked out of offices. I mean, just because I'm assertive. I brought in a list and... On one side, it said what I feel like. And the other side said what I want to feel like. And from then on, I went in and I said, if you can't get me decently here, then don't waste my time and I won't waste yours. And from there, it took about in a year, I got on with a doctor that gave me... We experimented, 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 but she worked with me and I got there. And that's way too long. Okay. This is awesome though, because this is what I talk about is advocating for yourself in the healthcare system. And we, and I, my family and I did this too. We fell victim to just believing doctors and doing what they said. And at one point I was on like nine different pills and had no idea what was going on and was completely numbed out and couldn't feel. And I was like hallucinating. And we just thought like, well, like this is what they said to take, right? And- that's scary. I I, ha- I created this list of tests to ask your doctor for and things to talk to them about because I'm really passionate about someone walking into a doctor's office and feeling confident, knowing which questions to ask, knowing this is how I feel yep. and these are the tests I want to take. I'm so proud of you for creating that list. Oh, that is thank brilliant. You. Oh, thank I've you. I've never even thought to do like, this is how I feel and this is how I want to feel and let's bridge that gap. Yes. Damn, that's so smart. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it's like survival mode, right? You just start thinking up things. And the one thing is I have, I've been very insecure, but there's always been a confident, a very instilled confidence. And at one point I was just like, I've got nothing to lose because what am I going to do? I have to get, I can't live like this on medication and I can't live without it. And so actually, a lot of people have used it. They have, you know, I have the most wonderful audience people and they've told me I went in and my psychiatrist, my psychologist, therapist said, wow, this is great. And it's because, and you're exactly right with your doctors, it's also the number one thing is going in with the correct information and having questions. 
um, especially in mental health. Let me tell you, they'll be shocked. Yeah. They're like, what? I usually just, you know, tell you what you should be on. And not every single one, I'm not generalizing, but you have to go in and let them know that you do know what you're talking about. And you have to take responsibility and control. I had to... People with mental illness are kind of bossed around because that's how we feel. We're not capable of making our own decisions. Well, we are. And we have to take that power into our own hands and responsibility as well for our own health because other people aren't going to do it for Mm -hmm. us. Can I ask how mental illness plays into addiction? I guess how people are affected in that way because I think we still don't understand that. So addiction, so I personally have never, I mean, I had had my wild times in my 20s, okay? So, but all of us have, regardless. Um, you went to college, you know, all, I can't relate it back to that, but I have never had addiction problems. A lot of people think if you have bipolar disorder, you have automatically must have alcohol problems or something. That's not true. So that's kind of a stereotype. There are two sides of it. It can be a way of coping absolutely with mental illness, especially the older you get. A lot of men, a lot of women as well, but the men can't feel like they can't come forward at all. So a lot of that happens as well. You just... You're numbing yourself. It's like self-harm or or anything that anybody would do to not feel what they're feeling. They can't come forward. So they're kind of trapped. And then alcohol makes them feel more so in their own skin. And then it becomes a full-blown addiction. And once you get to that point, you get to that point. The other side is it is at not every person. And I think this is a big deal as well, because it's like what you were talking about with just coping with your problems. Not everybody who has an addiction problem has a mental illness. And there's that part that's skipped of just labeling them, maybe throwing them on medication, but it doesn't work. It's induced as well. I have a lot of friends who grew up in very privileged homes, were kind of trapped as they were kids. And although I come from, you would look on the outside of where I grew up and think, oh, wow, like look at the pill problem in my area is unreal. And it's, you know, they call it a privileged drug. You don't see it. Let me tell you, and they all, they don't have mental illness, but they're using it as their environment. They're bored and they just have nothing to do. I mean, really, they have a lot of money that was just given to them. They're bored and it's there and it's provided easily for them. Um, So that's pretty much what I know about addiction and alcohol. It's both ways. There are certain things the minute you get on them, doesn't matter if you have a mental illness or not, you're addicted, you know, especially the pill problem. So yeah, there's both sides of it. But, you know, I was just outside and I saw, I almost thought about going up with to her, but then like, there's nothing I can do and I've done it before and it's backfired. She was older I would say like in her 70s walking with what are they a cart 
And she was talking to herself, like to a person that wasn't there, right? And so obviously she has schizophrenia or something has never... And I mean, talking. I've actually never seen it as to where she was literally like that close up and she's talking to another person. That's what happens. You know, she's probably been... I mean, you can tell on a lot of drugs and that's how she's coped and you get to a certain level where you're going to be homeless and, and, you know, but it's not every single person. Mm -hmm. How has this affected romantic relationships for you? Oh yeah, girl. Let's talk about love. You know, I love it. Let's talk about sex, baby. Baby, Let's let's talk talk about you and me. Oh my gosh. You're my best friend. I love it. (laughs) Love. Okay. So I love love. Romantic relationships. I've been in serious relationships. I love uh, dating is fun. However, ever since I did come out about bipolar disorder, whoa. (laughs) <laughs> I have had received some stigma. Of That's it. not in your Tinder profile. Let me tell you, Bumble. It's like, <laughs> let me just get it out there because the problem is it's so out there at this point. I'm mm-hmm. so out there. Yeah. You Google me, you hit the minute I see they followed me, I'm like, let me look and see when they call back. Okay. So, as far as romantic relationships, I think the biggest thing is. People fear feeling. They feel any type of fear, any type of challenge. We're in this society that you feel like you you just... Any type of challenge, you don't want to make the effort. It's an effort, right? Because my emotions are so... You know, like I'm speaking poetry to the guys and they're like, what? And feeling so deeply. But where it has become a problem, the example that I'll use is gaslighting. So I was in a very emotionally abusive relationship uh, for about three years. I do take a little bit of responsibility for it because I kind of knew... I didn't know that I was being emotionally abused, but I knew that it wasn't right. And it did happen around the time that I came out and started advocating. I was at a great point in my life. And this person was had their own issues and I could see through them and just a lot of elements about what they did that I don't think they liked me knowing and hated me in some way and used mental illness and my bipolar disorder as a platform for abuse which is in a manipulation. So gaslighting is a huge term that's coming in now. It's derived from the Ingrid Bergman movie, The Gas Lamp or The Gaslight, which is basically uh, she's manipulated to think she's insane. And really, it's it's just a manipulation tactic. Mm. And that's definitely what happened to me. I never thought I would ever say I was in an emotionally abusive relationship, but it was sick. He would steal and put it in my bag. He was trying to get me somewhere because he wanted... I think I knew a lot about him as far as him doing drugs and stuff. And he wanted to make sure that people knew that I was crazy. He tried to get me. He put drugs in my bag. And luckily, I knew the person at the store. I grew up with them and they were like, no, cheating. I called him out on it. Girl, I knew the person, the place, the thing, all of the nouns, right? Completely manipulated me, 
your mental illness has taken over our relationship. I love you. I can't be with you. You need to see your doctor. I went back to my doctor. Oh, I'm doing all these things up your meds. And then one night I'm sitting there. I do not snoop on the phone. I heard his phone ring and I said, look at it. Because a part of me knew I wasn't crazy. Yeah. Let me tell you, I looked at it, talked to the girl. I was right about person, place, and thing. Everything I said, I was right about. Literally the weekend, everything because I could feel it. Yeah. And at the end of the relationship, he tried to get me. It was very bad. Like I've never gotten too deep into the details of it because it's just like a long process, but he cornered me into a position and tried to get me erased, uh, arrested and sent back to a mental institution when I started to question things about him sexuality wise. Okay. That's like the Kelly, you know, I love you because that's the first time I've ever said that. It's kind of as a woman, it's hard to say, not that I have a problem with it, but in the minute and he tried to get me sent and told like went to authorities and luckily by thank God for the authorities, the the guy's sister had bipolar and saw what he was doing. And he was an officer and I didn't know, I thought I'm going to lose everything. And luckily it didn't happen. And I remember saying to him, I remember being outside when it happened and he had cornered me and the cop came. He said I had weapons on me. I had no idea. He manipulated the whole thing with his roommate because I think something was going on. I know this story is insane, right? That was a relationship for three years. I remember digging outside, which it sounds maybe a little bit off, but for me, and I talk about this at like the video I posted yesterday on my Instagram about the surface of life. I literally started because I thought ever I was going to lose everything, started digging into the ground because I just wanted to escape the surface of life. I remember saying like almost like Alice in Wonderland, I wanted to get out because I thought... I can't be here with these people. This is insane. What am I doing wrong? You know? And so in romantic love, I have lost trust a lot because I'm petrified. I feel like my emotions, you're too much. You are too emotional. And it's like, you cannot be warmed by my fire if you're not willing to get burnt by the flame. Mm. We all have... imperfections, including you. But because it's invisible, it's used against me. I push people away very much now. And it's something I'm working on, but I can't help it. You know, I can't help it. It's a little bit rough, but I love love and I love dating. I mean, I love I love being in love and um, I collect vintage love letters because at that time in my life, I lost that romantic in me. And so I started collecting the letters and that helped me. But I do love love. It's just, it is difficult, you know, to think what if something happened, they could throw it in on me. I could be arrested again. People don't understand that if you and I got into a fight, Kelly, right? Well, first of all, you'd take me out. So I'm not worried about I don't about know, girl. I don't know. Yeah, maybe not. I have that feistiness <laughs> yeah, in you me. Do. Yeah, but. And we got into a fight and say you started it and you completely did it. And I was over here, but someone walked in and it's on my record that I've been to a mental hospital. 
they looked that up and that that would be it. You would just say, oh, she's bipolar. They'd look it up and they'd say, here you go, back. That's how easy it is. So I'm, I like to date, but I, it's hard a little bit. Yeah. 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 So this is something we see a lot in the chronic illness community is we have good days and we have bad days. Mm. And oftentimes on Instagram, we'll share our good days. Oh, and yeah. this is, oh, I feel good. But then we forget to share our bad days. Yeah. Who wants to share their bad days? Mm-hmm. What do... I'm guessing I'm getting you on a great day. I mean, I don't know how often yeah, you feel this yeah. good. Um, and you're getting me on a really great day too, oh, which I is super so. fun. Yeah, geez, but like, like, what are your bad days look like? And how, oh. how does that feel? And how often do those come? And are there certain things that you find that trigger you? I'm up and down... I would say, I mean, decent amount of time. I'm, it's a roller coaster. That's the only way I can explain it. Uh, it's definitely not yearly, but it's mood swings like me going on this, and then in five minutes, I'm going to be completely different. That's a stereotype, but uh, like of being up and down that fast. It happens anytime. And I would say lately, as I have gotten older, it's more constant of... They call it rapid cycling. So it's going up and down. Like I'll be weeks, great. And then it's weeks like completely out of it. When I get down, I am lost behind the eyes. I mean, I'm out. I'm out. The amount that I can sleep, my body shuts down because I do have a lot of energy and your mind is constantly racing and you're feeling and it when you hit that low you're out i'm lost behind i can't text i can't even pick up my phone i'm completely out yeah and it's it's gotten i have to admit a little more and i adjust my medications but i also think it's just something i have to uh, deal with cuz that's my life and chronic illness that's what people go through so it's not every other day, but it does come out of nowhere and it has gotten a little bit worse as I've gotten older. I completely disconnect and shut down. And But those are just... I re- remind myself that those are just another day and they don't represent my whole life. I think people think once you go through a depression, you're never going to get one again. Well, not when you have bipolar. You have to constantly be preparing yourself for that. So how do you get out of those dark times? Um, I let it ride. I mean, honestly, I mean, not let it ride. I adjust my medications, but you know, like we were talking about, it's not all meds. I have to uh, work on something just every day doing little things of working out and even getting outside and walking around for 10 minutes is huge. Self-help books, reading, even just a little bit is good. Affirmations, just things you can do and journaling and getting those emotions out and sitting in it in a way. I think we beat ourselves up about feeling this way and are thinking about it so much. It's more like on it. Because if you're in a deep depression, you can't get out of it like that. There's not, oh, well, if I do 20 jumping jacks, then it's like after, wow, or smile for 30 seconds. 
you know, I sorry, I just had someone send me that meme. Totally. Actually, yeah, one of my good friends, she's probably going to be like, oh, what? I heard <laughs> you say that. I thought you loved that. Mm. <laughs> I, you smile for 30 seconds and you're out of a depression. Yeah. I was like, yeah, okay. okay. Right. I love this. Double tap. No. <laughs> I like, I, I never want to be said that again. But yeah, I think I just take it. But the thing is, there is always a point where professional help and going and seeking therapy and really discussing with my doctors. And I would say if it starts to go into like a couple of weeks or months, months, that's not that's not a good sign. But it can be a long time. It can be a long time. I go, you just never know. You never know. But when I'm gone, I'm gone. You know, it's it's pretty... When people see me, I mean, they don't because I completely hide away. But yeah. That's so rough. I want to finish with you talking about all the amazing things you're doing. Oh my gosh. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Let's talk more about myself, Kelly. Yes, please. Thank you. So I found you initially on Instagram and you had posted, I don't know, you had posted something. I can't remember what the first thing was because I've read so much of your stuff. And I was like, damn, this girl is unafraid to put herself out there. And the way you serve people with your words and your honesty, and you can tell your whole heart is in it and you're so passionate. And I was just like, I love her so much. I need to know her. I need to talk to her. And it's amazing what you do. So I want you to share with everyone what you're working on, the book, and just why you're doing it and how you're serving people in this life. Oh my gosh. Well, Kelly, you're amazing too. I feel so grateful for being here. And it's people like you that allow me to share my story, which I'm so grateful for. You inspire me. Okay. Yes. So I'm an advocate as well as a writer. I'm on Instagram and love the gram. Okay. I think it's a great platform. I write a lot of poetry and quotes about love and life, about being emotional that really resonate with the mental health community as well as other people. And so I'm... I love the Instagram. I have a blog that I've had is the one I came out with. It's halfway to Hannah. And it's expanded to a platform where other people contribute to it as well. I'm a video creator. So I edit and I do videos, write scripts for them um, and post them on Instagram and Facebook. So I'm doing that. Uh, You know, it's called a content creator. And then I'm really excited because the biggest thing... I've had to put one thing on my plate, which is very difficult. And I am coming out with a book this summer. I know I'm really excited. And I can't wait for it. It's based... It's the story behind my quotes. I've taken a lot of the quotes that have connected with people, just majority of them, because I've been writing everything since I was a kid, but I never exposed it. So there's in there's stories because I am most vulnerable. Right now, I'm just honest, right? But it's hard for me to be raw. And I can really be that when I'm writing. So it is by far, I mean, the very raw about where... And it's about other people's story as well. That in a lot of people from the mental hospital, that people will be captured by their story. And that's not even a way to plug it. I'm telling you. you I mean, I think they were a gift. So it's the inspiration and the story behind what I've written. 
Um, it's not a memoir necessarily because I'm talking about other people, but I'm really excited about it. I'm publishing it myself. I love your book. I told you I've got it Thank on you. that yes, Kindle you're life. So sweet. But yeah, I'm really excited about it. It's called, okay, so I came up, I know. It's called The Truth About Broken. <gasps> and yeah, and it's a, a, a guide to, I mean, I haven't come up with that. I'm still trying to figure out the tagline, but it's a guide because it's going to teach how to accept and embrace who you are. Mm. So I'm really excited. Summer 2019. I'm a perfectionist. So I'm like, kind of, I got to get it together there. But it's coming out in a couple of months and I've always wanted to do it. I just can't wait. It's not even about sales. It's just about getting it out there. So those are the big things I'm continuing to advocate and write and just manifesting it. I'm excited and so happy to do this and be in LA. Yes. You know, West Coast life. Oh, well, yeah. I'm so proud of you. I can't wait thank to read you. the book. Oh my gosh, thank you. Oh, and just thank you for being here and oh, sharing your story. You. You're going to impact so many people. I'm so excited. Thank you so much, Kelly. You're amazing. This has been so much fun, of so course. So fun. Okay. Ah! Thank you for spending so much time with me and Hannah. As you can tell, she is so next level. Not even a question. I just love everything she's about. I love the way she writes, but I really love the way she speaks. And her presence is unlike anyone else's. It is really, really special. And it takes a very special person to do this kind of work. So I'm so grateful for her and everything that she's doing. Don't forget to head to Hannah D. Bloom on Instagram and Halfway to Hannah to check out her blog. And give her some love and thank her for just being so damn real and so good. We'll have another amazing conversation for you here on Ceremony Wellness in just a few days. But in the meantime, thank you so much for being here and we'll see you soon.